Thank you for joining for this episode of the Techspective podcast. Uh, my guest for this episode is uh, Tarun Desikan from uh, Banyan Security. So Tarun, if you want to introduce yourself. Awesome. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, my name is Tarun Desikan. I'm one of the co-founders of a zero trust security startup here in San Francisco called Banyan. Uh, you know, we've been working on this space for quite a few years now, but it's just in the last two years as kind of the pandemic has hit its peak and then seems to be, world seems to be coming back to normal, that our space has really come to the front and center of the security world. So I'm excited to talk to you more about it, how we got here and, and so on. Okay. Um, I, I I touched on this when I had, uh, when I had Den on uh, back in November, December. Um, but for the people who didn't listen to that podcast, I do want to start off by specifying for anyone, say, over the age of, I don't know, I'll say 40, that Banyan Security is not Banyan as in Banyan Vines. Yeah. So so Banyan Vines, for folks who don't know, kind of invented the Internet originally. It was a way to connect laptops and machines in an era where TCP IP and modern networking didn't exist. So yeah, we have nothing to do with Banyan Vines, but we do like the symbolism of networking and connecting things together. That's why we chose the name. And Banyan itself went public, got acquired, became obsolete like 20 years ago. So yeah, no, no connection other than the symbolism. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I, and I don't know the exact timeline. All I, all, I, all I can say for sure is that I know that when I was getting into the IT field as a network admin 20 three, four years ago, it existed, but it was already waning. Like it wasn't, yes, it yes. wasn't a huge thing. Um, you know, it, 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 but it was something I was aware of. Um, but to, uh, to go back to the point that you brought up in, in, in the intro there, zero trust, you know, is not a new concept. I mean, zero trust has been around, you know, it's been around forever and, and, you know, I, I forget the exact year, I don't know, 2010, 11, that John Kinderveg, right, 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 you know, right. coined the term and made it popular. Um, and having, you know, been in the cybersecurity trenches, I mean, I immediately looked at it and said, okay, so we've just kind of, ex we've expanded on the concept of least privilege. We basically said, you know, like, you know, you've got your least privilege and that makes sense. Um, but it was like, you know, least privilege was just saying, I'm going to let, Tony into the network, but I'm going to give him, you know, the lowest privileges he needs to to accomplish his tasks. And that part makes sense. But what we've seen, you know, kind of over time as technology changes, as the way we use it changes, as the threat landscape changes, that that's not really good enough to just say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to check Tony's ID at the door and then give him free reign of the building. Um, you know, so now zero trust is more, well, I'm going to check your ID at every door. And I might even stop you in the hallway and ask you for your ID again. Um, but it's still an extension of sort of the same thing, which is just, you know, it, it's it, we're trying to like kind of expand how we do identity and 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 uh, access and make it more secure at the same time. And so it, it's not new, but to your point, the 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 pandemic really kind of shifted everything where all of a sudden everyone's working from home everyone's remote everyone's you know at, le at least before if i'm the network admin or the it security admin or whatever 
you know, the perimeter has been, you know, gone for a long time um, in, a, in a practical sense. But at least I had the. The. What's the word I'm looking for? At least I had like the, the theory of a perimeter. Like, I knew that I had this building and there were people sitting in my building. You had control. I think that that's maybe what you had. You had control over the perimeter. So so zero trust, you know, we I have been tracking zero trust for a while, just as you have. And I kind of see kind of three distinct phases where the term zero trust has also changed. So this is my theory. I'm curious what you think. So when it first got started, folks came to the office and most applications kind of ran on premise. A few things had gone to SaaS, a few things had gone to cloud. So that was kind of the first generation of zero trust. And that was really about segmentation and least privilege access once you're on the network. Uh, I think in the second generation, maybe a little bit pre-COVID, most applications had moved to the cloud. There was less and less remote, uh, less and less applications being run in the in, on the data centers. You know, most of them are running as Office 365 or or G Suite, Salesforce, AWS, Azure. Most things had moved, but people were still coming to the office. So that was kind of the second generation of zero trust where it became, hey, the, the perimeter doesn't exist for your applications. How do you manage access when these applications don't sit in your, your good perimeter? I think now we're in this kind of third generation of zero trust where, well, your employees are not coming to the office either. So post, post COVID, we're dealing with a hybrid workforce where you can't make the assumption that the employee will be in a physical location or you can give, it, give them a VPN to put them in a network that corresponds to a physical location. Like you have to deal with a world where the workforce is hybrid and the applications are hybrid. So again, zero trust has had to kind of reinvent itself to match this new reality. So I think as the world has moved in these three phases, but that term zero trust has been so catchy, right? They're just those, those two words together really don't mean anything, but still it's so catchy that, that you're able to apply it for different security concepts, even though the, you know, the underlying environments have changed drastically over these three phases. Yeah, well, and and yeah, I feel like it, you know, it's it, it is definitely gaining momentum both as a buzzword and as an actually implemented concept. Um, and it to me, it's a little bit like the early days or even to some extent, even the, the current days of DevOps of, okay, it's this thing, everyone's talking about it, everyone, you know, it makes sense, everyone's doing it, and yet nobody's really doing it the same and nobody can even really define it. It's like, you know, if you ask 10 different companies, well, what is DevOps? Um, you know, you're going to get 13 different answers. Um, and 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 that I think that has changed a little bit over time, but it's just like it's 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 a it's a more difficult concept when you can't just point to a set of tools and you say, well, if you just buy that, then you have DevOps. You know, if you just buy that, now you have zero trust. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, and it it and it it varies some from environment to environment. But but as a philosophy, if if you start understanding it, it can be very powerful for your organization. So DevOps, I think, at least if you're in the software industry, has completely transformed how we ship software, how we think about, uh, you know, managing the lifecycle of applications that go into production. So I think the analogy is actually a good one. Zero trust could be very similar, where it's not one product that's going to get you to zero trust, but if you adopt the philosophy and and inculcate it into your organization, then you can start seeing some dramatic benefits. Yeah. 
and and that's that I think is is maybe the key is when it comes to things like zero trust and DevOps, it's it's not that it's not that there's a specific product you can just go buy. It works the other way. It kind of works from the top down. It's like you have to adopt the the mindset and the philosophy. Then you can figure out the tools that help help you get there. Um, but you have to have the philosophy first. In the early days of the DevOps world, it was very interesting. There were companies that would just very proudly say, "We are not DevOps." Right? They would just say, "We are not DevOps. Dev shall never talk to ops. That's just not how we run our stack." Do you see that in Zero Trust? Uh, do you do you see people who say, "We are not Zero Trust. We shall not. We shall trust the network. Like we are going to be so deep in the network that we are not. We shall not do Zero Trust." Well, right. You don't see that, and what you see is kind of the opposite of. Now everyone kind of, you know, claiming zero trust or or everyone, everyone's doing zero trust on some way in some way, shape or form. Um, again, partially a function of the pandemic, partially a function of the, you know, kind of dramatic. I mean, I guess this is a domino effect from the pandemic, but the dramatic rise in ransomware attacks and the attacks on, you know, critical infrastructure. And then you have the Biden administration coming in and saying, OK, every, you know, we, we want government agencies to to implement zero trust. and you know, that's one of those things like, well, once the government says, hey, you should have, you know, you should have EDR, you should have zero trust. All of a sudden, a lot of other organizations in the private sector who weren't necessarily on that path are like, oh, well, I guess that's something we should do. Yeah. And do you think there was an analogy in DevOps? Was there like something, some a mandate like that, that that you should do DevOps? I don't I don't know. I don't I don't I don't recall one specifically. I think um I think with DevOps to to, to me with DevOps it was it, it was kind of more it it became very quickly a competitive differentiator. If if one if if your competitor was had adopted a DevOps um you know philosophy and started implementing DevOps practices and you had not Yes, it was very difficult to keep up. Then, if you're still using waterfall and agile, and 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 you're working on three month or six month or one year development cycles, um, you know, release cycles, and your competitor is, you know, identifying issues and and cranking out changes in the next couple hours, you know, that 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 makes it very difficult to compete. And I, so I think that one. To, to me, and I, and I could be wrong because I'm not I, I am not a DevOps uh, engineer or, or, or expert, but from what I think, you know, as someone watching how that how that kind of evolved, I think that's, you know, as companies started started adopting it, other companies were like, well, we need to do we need to speed up somehow. We need to we need to stay competitive. Um, and so you almost couldn't not adopt DevOps in some way, shape or form like, you you know, and anyone who today is still trying to use you know, waterfall methods and six month release cycles is is not going to be able to compete. I, I saw a related study in, in the security field recently. I forget the source, but they, they were saying they were comparing organizations that were using legacy networking tools, you know, uh, appliances, on-prem active directory, you know, that kind of mentality and comparing them to organizations they put in quotes that had adopted a zero trust posture and they were trying to correlate the ransomware, the attacks, the data losses. And I don't know how real these numbers are. They were saying 53% difference. If you adopt zero trust, you're like half as likely to get breached and be uh, impacted by ransomware. 
Now it's a survey data, so I don't know how much credibility to give it, but I think directionally you'd probably start seeing something pretty quickly in this realm as well. Um, yeah, well, and 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 also, so it's not the same in terms of competitive advantages. It's not the same, you know. If you look at all of the whole history of security, um, and and technology, like technologies are developed first and foremost because they either you know m help you be more productive, you know, they streamline something or they make something more convenient, um, they, you know, and then after the fact, someone eventually comes along and says, oh wait, we should secure that. Um, yeah. So the the kind of the bottom line revenue perspective is always going to be first and the and the and the you know the profit motive and the productivity are always going to be first and so that's the devops side the devops side is okay i need to produce faster and then you did see eventually someone said okay well let's throw the second there let's make it a dev secops because we need that part too well with zero trust i think 10 years ago or even 5 years ago you don't really look at it like like it's a competitive advantage, but more and more, I feel like it it starts to become one. Like it starts to become like if you if you have effectively if you have effectively impl implemented zero trust, you know, not only does being more secure give you some sort of an advantage over competitors who are less secure, because at least you can you know focus on the right things and you're not scrambling to to deal with attacks you don't need to deal with, but also to partners and customers you become more attractive. I mean, if you can if you can demonstrate that and you can say, look, you know, we we are more secure because we've implemented zero trust, um, that should be a competitive advantage. Well, even to employees, like if you just come back to why we started Banyan now, this was five, six years ago, we really were big advocates of remote work, work from anywhere. So this was well before the pandemic, but what we saw was that there was such a dearth of technical talent, uh, especially in certain fields like advanced networking and security and so on. But but there is technical talent all over the world, all over America, and and here in this in Silicon Valley, everyone wanted to recruit just up and down the 101. And if if you if you peel the onion a little bit, you know, enabling remote work, enabling work from anywhere, can make organizations insanely more productive. And so, in some sense, you know, that's that's if you look at our mission statement at Banyan, which hasn't changed in many many years, even now, it was, can we enable work from anywhere by rethinking enterprise security? Like enterprise security is such a bottleneck for for a culture that 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 wants people to work remotely, uh, work asynchronously, not be in physical locations, and and I think the pandemic kind of has really accelerated. There was already a secular trend, right? More and more organizations were were distributed and encouraging remote work, but with the pandemic, that just became an overnight just a reality for many many organizations. And so zero trust as an enabler for work from anywhere is also a very interesting angle that that we spend a lot of time thinking about, and it just became reality. Just that that was astounding to me. All right, well let's talk a little bit more specifically about how I don't want to go into like deep technical details of how Banyan works, but but how does Banyan security? fit in the environment like you know like if i'm if i'm the client if i'm the customer what other tools should i have in place how does how does banyan kind of inter inter interrate interrelate with those right so so the way to think about banyan is historically you built a network security stack around an office or or multiple offices uh, it was typically like a firewall appliance that might have had 
uh, some intrusion detection, a VPN component, and so on. But really, your security model was people came to the office, and then you had this appliance that would give you security. And so the way to think about Banyan is imagine a world where people don't always come to the office and your applications aren't running in the office. So Banyan is this layer that sits between the user and the resources they need to do their job. And so essentially, we're a cloud-delivered component. We have a, a, a client that runs on the device that sets up the connectivity. Uh, we have a cloud component where you manage the policies and the connectivity and, and those kinds of things. And then from, from an end user's perspective, they just it's just like accessing Dropbox or Salesforce. They don't even know Banyan is there. It just functions. They don't need to log on to a network. You know, they don't need to connect to a VPN. None of that stuff happens. So, so that's the mental model. That we don't. We want the user not to think about. The, the, it's just like everything is in the cloud. We don't want the user doesn't worry about how to get to Gmail, right? They just open the app, they connect to Gmail. So we we encourage that same user experience. But in order to accomplish that, we do need organizations to have some fundamental building blocks in place. The first thing is strong cloud identity. So. Back in the day, many organizations relied on an on-premises active directory. It, it ran on a server under the desk of the IT guy, right? That's where active directory ran. Now, the problem with that is if I'm sitting in a beach in Hawaii or wherever, like I'm not going to be able to get to that on-premise server. But, but the world has changed. There's Azure Active Directory, you know, Microsoft itself provides a cloud directory. There's Okta. There are plenty of Google has a directory. So we do require an organization to have committed to an online directory. That, that is kind of the core enabler we think for Zero Trust. And combining with that directory comes uh, other user posture tools like multi-factor authentication, which we think is really important. So that's the kind of the primary requirement for a solution like Banyan to be successful, is that the organization has bought into the fact that identity cannot be in that desk under the IT admin. You know, it can't be there. It has to be managed in the cloud by Google or Microsoft or you know, whoever you're using, it could be yourself, your own cloud identity. But once identity is managed in the cloud, you can do all connectivity through the cloud. Um, one of the things, and you, you and I spoke about this before, um, and, and, and I, I wrote about it kind of pre-RSA, but you have, and I, I I feel like this applies to a lot of, a lot of things when it comes to security. But there are kind of two different customers, um, and maybe more. But there's two. two from for my for my example, there's two different customers. One customer is, I was told I should have zero trust. I need to check a box. You know, it's the compliance customer. You know, like I, I, the compliance checklist says I need X Y Z, so I'm gonna go get X Y Z. I don't really care uh, so much about, you know. The, the the quality of XYZ, <laughs> uh, as long as I can check the box. And then there's the other end of the spectrum of, well, no, I want the very best of this thing. Um, you know, I, I want to figure out how to how to make this work. And, and I've, uh, on a similar vein, I've always maintained that if you focus on security, you will achieve compliance. But if you focus on compliance, you will not necessarily achieve security. Yeah. yeah. Um, in that, so it, with that as the kind of the, the setup and the framework, you know, there are companies out there. Um, I, 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 I'm, I, I won't, I'm not even going to name names, um, but there are companies out there who offer zero trust solutions that are, 
you know, maybe uh, maybe they're not as good. Maybe it, it checks the box. Um, and sometimes those are larger corporations. And, you know, and, 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 you know, so what you and I had talked about before was kind of the the security vendor playing field and how, you know, how a smaller company that, you know, maybe has a, a, a purpose built product, maybe it's the very best product for that to solve that problem for a lot of customers, but trying to compete with a larger company coming in and saying, okay, well, we're going to throw all this whole, you know, package at you. Um, you know, yep. it's got this, it's got this, it's got this, and it also has zero trust. Um, you know, so I wanted to, you know, get your, get your thoughts on that on the podcast and then, and then talk about like, how, the, how does that play out when you go talk to customers? Because I think, and I'll let you address that first. And then I have a follow up. Cause I think you, yep. you, you sort of talked about it previously and there's something I want to get to, but I'll let you yeah, answer. And, first. and I think even in that article, what you had compared it to was, are you buying a bundle of Comcast cable? Like what, when you buy a bundle of Comcast cable, you know, you get the shopping channel, you get the cooking channel, you get the live sport, or are you just buying Disney plus so that your kids can watch frozen 10 times a day, which is what we do. So are you buying a bundle or are you buying a very focused solution? And, and I think that's, that's a great point. It is, it is a challenge as any startup in the security space, because you're typically com com competing with incumbents that sell a whole stack and you can just check the box, you can get everything. But I think there's one other thing that has changed. You know, it's 2022. It, uh, there's consumer, consumerization of IT. People are used to swapping products in and out. So even though it's kind of attractive to buy everything from a big vendor, what really matters in IT today is ease of use and ease of deployment. Um, the IT administrator prioritizes that over everything else. You know, in, in, they will choose the easiest solution to get their job done. And the challenge with check the box solutions typically is that they're sold as a big fat, you know, combination sale, a big fat bundle. It is really hard oftentimes to get them to actually work in your environment. So even though you can check the box, it won't actually work. Right. And well, yeah. Yeah. So with the, with the cable analogy, yeah, it's like, you know, I think what, what stands out to me there would be kind of sports networks. You know, mm -hmm. like when you buy cable, you know, cable TV, or even if you get Hulu, you know, you, 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 you so you've, you've quote unquote cut the cord. <laughs> I mean, and I can say that because I've done that. And like, you know, we, we don't have cable. We haven't had it for a long time, but I feel like I'm spending more money now on all these like one-off services. But yeah. one of them is Hulu, which gives me my live television back, but I'm still paying one price for Hulu. And then, okay, well now I've got ESPN and ESPN this and ESPN that and, ES, you know, and 15 different ESPNs. Um, if there was some other network out there that came along that was like a, you know, somehow, I don't know how you would, how you would manage this, but if you were like a better sports network and, you know, you, you, you just, you had, you had better, be, somehow you delivered better sports, but it would be hard to break in because everyone's already got this package with ESPN. They're like, why would I offer your yes. sports network? Um, well, there's there's this you know there's Willow TV. There are a few others dedicated to sports, like cheap guys like me subscribe to. Yeah, I was just gonna say, and this, this ties back to the, the the whole thing about uh, you know we started off with pre-recording about you know me not wanting to be identified as, as Texan, and uh, we won't we won't get too political, but like I would literally pay Hulu more money if they would let me eliminate Fox News. <laughs> I, I mean, I would pay more. Um, like I, I don't want any of my money going to Fox. And so if you offered me a package where you said, look, it's going to cost you a little bit more, 
but none of your money will go to Fox. I'm like, sign me up. Well, just coming back to, I don't know if that analogy still retains itself in the IT security world, but but I think one analogy does, which is there is bundling is the opposite of innovation. So when when there is a lot of innovation in the space, you will see unbundling. And then as the innovation dries up, you will see bundling again. So I think in the cable TV world, the real innovation was like 10, 15 years ago, right? That's when Netflix came out. Uh, that's when HBO went to HBO Plus. You started seeing the real unbundling and Netflix went public on the unbundling. And I think as a market matures, you're going to see the bundling come back. That's what's happening with Hulu. Hulu, Disney, you know, ESPN, all owned by the same company. So they started bundling again. And, and basically, innovation and disruption is combined with unbundling. It's just the cycle just constantly repeats itself. It's like the banyan. There was a banyan 20 years ago. There's a banyan today. So, so it's, just a, it's just a cycle, and we just need to recognize where we are in a given cycle. And in, in, in this particular case of zero trust, the COVID is really new. Work from anywhere is still new. So the cloud is still relatively new. So we're still in an innovation cycle. So when you're in an innovation cycle, I think the purchaser, in our case, the IT administrator, in your case, you know, the purchase, the guy buying the cable TV, really values easy friction, get it done quickly. But then as the innovation ceases, you just want to buy a bundle and not think about it. Right. Right. And when I was, you know, early in my cybersecurity career days, um, you know, I was working in, you know, we were, we were doing antivirus. Yep. Uh, we, we were doing managed antivirus, you know, as, as EDS for General Motors and American Airlines and Marathon Oil and whatever. And so, you know, some of them would have McAfee, some would have Semantics, some would have Trend Micro, whatever, and we would manage it all. Um, and that was at a point where that some of that consolidation was happening. We had gone from all these point solutions to, well, what if we pulled this all together? Yes, and, yeah. you know, McAfee was a big one. Well, like, oh, we'll just have EPO and then we'll pull all these things under EPO and you could just buy McAfee and then you have all, all everything you need. Um, and I was in favor of that um, at, at the time because it, it made sense to me. I was like, well, why would I want to try to purchase, implement, configure, yes. manage 15 different tools if I can have one tool um, and one screen and one dashboard yep. that give me all of that. Um, yes. But again, you know, and then to the kind of the point you made, when you do that, you give up some of the innovation and you give up some of the some of the quality, because if you have, you know, maybe McAfee is awesome at like 10 of those 15 things, but inevitably some of those are not going to be the best. McAfee well, can't possibly be best at all 15. Right, right. So if you look at McAfee, just that example, they just missed the boat on the EDR. Right, they missed the boat on analytics and machine learning and and having endpoint security based on kind of AI capabilities. And kind of now, if you look at CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike over a period of four or five years was able to come in and completely kind of disrupt the antivirus market with a point, what you would call a point solution, right? All it did was EDR. And then, but then once it disrupted antivirus, now I would say CrowdStrike is building its own bundle, right? They they acquire this company, acquire that company, they sell a whole stack to you. They call it XDR and you know they sell a sock as a service to you. So you definitely see the this trend in industry constantly happening. Uh, and I'm I'm very happy in some sense that you know our product is in that space now because we see a very clear I would say you you probably worked a lot on UTM appliances, right? 
you know, from McAfee, you probably worked a lot on these fire, firewall appliances, UTM appliances. That's still the biggest spend for most network security teams. And, and that's what's ripe for disruption today. Yeah. Well, the other point that I wanted to get to from our previous conversation about the, the article is, is that if I recall, when I, when I was talking about it, uh, when, we, when we spoke the first time about going in to talk to a customer and you know the check the box customer versus the, the customer that actually cares, it, it seems to me like those, th those customers kind of like very quickly self-select. Like, like, like as soon as you start the conversation, you can pretty quickly identify, you know, is this a customer that would be interested in, in banned security or is this the check the box customers? Because I think the check the box customers, it, it is a very different purchase process. It's a very different mindset. Um, so I, I, I would imagine that it, it's not a case where you know you're going in and you get way down the sales funnel path, right. and then and, and then you get down to the decision and they go, eh, you know what? I'm just going to check a box. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I call them the Microsoft E6 license customer. So if you're going to buy an E6 license, like I can put you in a bucket, right? Like you're going to pay Microsoft hundred dollars a user and just buy everything from Microsoft, and and that's the E6 license customer. And yeah, they don't even talk to us. The, the, there is one chat. I think there's a third type of customer that maybe you haven't brought, brought up is is the customer is kind of intimidated by even entering this field because all they hear about is this big fat license that in order to get security, they have to pay all this money and buy all these different tools because the, the other thing the big vendors have is they have big reach. They reach everybody. So if they put a message out that the only way you can get zero trust security is by buying this big fat bundle and paying us a Microsoft E6 license, that actually intimidates a lot of people, mostly like smaller companies. And that's, I think, another topic that's near to my heart, which is these smaller businesses that are oftentimes most susceptible to rans ransomware attacks feel that they do not have the budget or the need because they will never get to an E6 license. Like they just, it's just so intimidating to them. Right. Well, and I, and I have also had uh, on a, a different podcast episode, um, my guest and I talked about the, the Microsoft bundling. He was talking about it from the perspective of going in to a customer and trying to sell them on, you know, some, it doesn't really matter, pick one, like some element of security that happens to be part of that license. So if you're talking to a company that has that license already, um, that becomes a huge point of friction. Even if even if the security practitioner, even if the people you're talking to love what you have to offer yeah. and, yeah. and they see the value and they're like, you know what? Yeah, the thing that we have, it's not very good. We need this. Well, now you've got to make that case to the CFO. And the CFO is going to say, I'm already paying for this. Like I'm already paying, you know, like the, the zero trust is part of this this package that I'm already paying for. Why would I pay a separate fee for zero trust again? Yeah, yeah, but it's very similar to the McAfee uh, CrowdStrike analogy we were chatting about, which is Microsoft uh, gave away single sign-on for free. It still gives away single sign-on for free, and yet Okta is a forty billion dollar customer, a uh, forty billion dollar company. The reality is, even though the big vendors will give a solution away for free, it will not be that easy. It's just the it's just how the it's not going to be easy. It's not going to meet all the needs of a, of a IT, and I think 
one of the coolest things about, you know, I started my career 25 years ago building God boxes, like big networking boxes that you had to spend 12 months convincing like Sprint and AT&T to deploy in their networks. But today we send these little pieces of software and we host them in the cloud and you can just click a button and switch from one to the other. The switching costs are lower than ever before. So if you have a nifty technology, I think I think you can take on Microsoft. Because like you're, you're right. I mean, when I was when I was a network admin and you know whatever in, in my early you know network admin and cybersecurity days, that was a a much larger deal. Like because if I wanted to make a switch, yeah. I was switching I was switching appliances in a data center. I was switching entire servers. I was switching that was a that's a much bigger deal. Whereas now I can click a button in you know the AWS marketplace or something and and I'm I'm now using something else. And 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 never before has switching costs been been this low. Uh, but then the the bar for the product is much higher. Right? When you build that appliance and you ship it, you're like, once I'm in there, nobody is moving me. Well, you're susceptible to get replaced by a younger, nimbler company as well. So it's a very interesting dynamic that the cloud security world is in, which I I I'm a big fan of. Without like I don't want to put Banyan specifically on the spot. I'm asking this as like a an, an, an industry question. Um and you can you can decline the answer. I, I'm I'm just very curious. I don't know the answer. A lot of times when you like you when you buy cable TV, when you buy home internet, when you buy mobile phone service, they lock you in. You know they they want to lock you in. They you know they, especially the big guys. They're like, all right, well you know we're going to give you this one year deal. You know we're and you know we're going to you know you're on a two year contract, whatever. In the security space, are vendors doing that? Are vendors like because if I'm the customer, I see that as kind of like a that's a that's a mark against you, um, you know. I mean, I mean, if it's just the way everyone does it, then it, it is what it is, and that's the way the market works. But if I'm looking at multiple options, and I've got one customer or, or one vendor who says, "Look, we have we have enough faith in our product, we're going to sell you the product, and if it doesn't work for you, and you drop us next month, that's fine." As opposed to, "All right, well, I'm going to lock you in for a year or two years because that makes me wonder, like, okay, so are you are you not confident that I would stay?" <laughs> if, yeah. if, I, if, if I didn't, if I wasn't legally obligated. I think you're dealing with two different dynamics here. One is what I would call consumption-based usage and consumption-based pricing, and the other one is procurement and legal. And it's easy to confuse the two, but, but they're actually two different. So AWS is a great example, right? It doesn't matter whether you spend $100 million on AWS or you're on the free tier spending $10 a month. You get the same interface, the same consumption-based pricing model which is you pay only what you use. Uh, you can turn it off at any time, you can leave us, and that's consumption-based pricing. And so we do consumption-based pricing. I think that is still not common in the security space. They still don't have consumption-based pricing. Most uh, larger enterprises just want to sell you like a big box and then a services contract on it. Uh, consumption-based pricing is still coming into the market. So we every startup does consumption-based pricing. That's the only way you compete against the big guys. So we do consumption-based pricing. There is the reality of once you go to a certain size, you do want a legal framework and a contract that lasts more than a month. So even companies like AWS, they have consumption-based pricing, but then they will allow you to create a multi-year contract, a multi-year purchasing vehicle, and that's mostly for predictability on the finance and the legal teams. I, say, I can see from a business perspective wanting that because I want to be able to say, okay, I have these, these customers, I have this monthly revenue, can I 
confidently predict that I will have this revenue three months from now or six and, months from now. And the customer also doesn't want to keep writing you checks that vary every month. They also want some predictability that says this is a legal framework. I'm paying for this much. This is how it's going. And so they can put into their budgets. So I I, 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 I agree with you that more, more products should be consumption-based pricing. And, and that is just really crucial. You should, you, if you unbundle your tools and make it consumption-based, that's just like the, how Netflix disrupted Comcast. Well, and I want to say, I'm pretty sure you and I talked about this last time too, which is it, it, this, this part of the conversation reminds me of the thing that bothers me every time I see a, a, a Liberty Insurance commercial. Yeah, Liberty's whole advertising campaign is only pay for what you need. And I'm like, of course I would only go. Why would I like, yeah, why would I be every other, if I, you're telling me that if I go get Allstate or State Farm that I'm going to be paying for a bunch of stuff I don't need, um, which is basically the message they're sending. But what they also don't tell you, and 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 I'm not going to not going to guarantee this, but I'm I'm pretty sure that you actually are paying a premium for this only pay what you need. Like they they have a base service where you pay for what they want you to pay for. And then if you only want to pay for what you need, you just pay a little bit more and then you can, you know, and so the whole thing, it doesn't make any sense to me, but yeah, it, it should be, you know, the consumption based from the customer perspective makes way more sense all the time. I'm like, why would I pay you, you know, for this whole thing? Um, it's it's a it's a philosophy, you know. So many security products, including McAfee, still have their documentation behind some kind of paywall, right? You have to be a customer to read how how the antivirus works. And I think this is 2022. I hate that kind of stuff. Like why why can't you just put it on the internet? It's the internet. Like, I should be able to read and and educate myself before I I go use your product. And and there's so many things in the culture of security that that I, I wish would catch up with consumer and B2B SaaS, you know? Yeah. Well, and the flip side of the consumption-based is having enough. There There is a kind of a break-even point for the business um, in terms of, you know, when I look at things like, SurveyMonkey or HubSpot or whatever, you know, and they 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 offer their free they're their free tier, yes. you know, so great, you know, and anybody can go use it, and that's fine. But when you start looking at the plans, they kind of start way up here, like you know, and then a lot of times there's not a middle ground. Like if you 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 either if you're using the free one, you know, you can you can have like you know ten questions or whatever. It's like well, if you want to ask. You know, I, I don't know what the first tier is, but the, you know, it's a lot of money for the first tier and it's a big jump. Yes. Um, but from the company's perspective, I can see them going, okay, yeah, we get that there's a gap there and that, you know, it would be nice if we met this middle gap where you have, you pay less money for less, but we still have to play, provide the back end. We still like our, our infrastructure costs for providing it didn't go down. There's a, there's a foundation there that we can't kind of go below. Yeah, well, I, just another analogy, like I got booted off a flight uh, a few weeks ago and, you know, they paid us like four, four, four or $5,000 in flight, flight vouchers for that. I'm like, how do you go from zero and absolutely no leg room and no food and drink on a flight to paying me four grand not to go on the flight? Like, this is just a step a function. Story, there pricing. was a story last week. There was a flight out of, I think, Grand Rapids, Michigan. They paid people $10,000 yeah, yeah. not I, to I, fly. 
I, I think pricing is very interesting because uh, it is both elastic for some people, but it's very in inelastic for some people. And so you're always looking to maximize the revenue. And there are some very smart people figuring out very smart algorithms that makes it worthwhile to give you 10 grand to always have a fully booked flight, you know, other 364 days. Right. Well, in, in a similar vein, you know, over over the pandemic, I mean, we, we did a lot more door dashing and grub hubbing and Uber eating yep. and, you know, food delivery all the time. Um, one of my complaints has always been not not the cost of the food per se. I mean, a little bit, but more the volume of the food. Like, mm -hmm. OK, you, you charged me twenty dollars or whatever for this meal, but you gave me like two and a half times the food that I needed. Um. And so I, you know, I, I frequently have had this conversation like with my, with my family and my kids where I'm like, I would like to, you know, why can't they just cut the price in half and give me half the food? You know, and then one of my, one of my yeah. sons who is smarter than me said, well, it doesn't work that way. It's not that, that cut and dry because again, they've got their fixed costs for exactly. rent yeah. and employees and whatever. And like, they, even if they gave the food away for, you know, or even if they were doing it at zero profit, there's only a certain floor they can go to for making that food. And I said, you know, and I was like, all right, that makes sense. Um, in the food one, I'd be like, okay, but still cut the food in half. Like, <laughs> like even if you're going to still charge me the same $20, I'm just throwing the other half away. Like why, why give people more than. Sorry, I'm not judging, but don't you have a fridge? Can't you just keep it in the fridge and heat it the next day or something? I mean, that we, 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 we that's more of a, what's the word I'm looking for? That's like a whole a, a, a holding pattern for the trash. Like it, you know, it does go to the fridge. People <laughs> ostensibly are going to eat it the next day. It doesn't get eaten the next day. By the day after, and then everyone's all judgy about it. Like, oh, it's been in the fridge for two days. Now I don't want it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, uh, probably probably less than twenty percent of the food that we saved actually got consumed after the fact. <laughs> but. At this point, we, you know, we, we've, we've, we've tried to switch back to stopping all of that and just cooking for ourselves again. Um, and even that, you know, even then we, you know, we, we have leftovers, the leftovers go in the fridge, ostensibly someone's going to eat them, but nobody ever does. We, we have moved as far away from zero trust security as you can possibly move in 30 minutes. How do, you, how do you how do you tie DoorDash and too much food back to zero trust? Um, that's a good question. But uh, no, I mean, I mean, I guess that all stemmed just from my my trying to understand the 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 the, the revenue model of you know our you know our our our, our companies asking people to lock in and and the pros and cons of of either side and and actually one of the things i've appreciated with both of my conversations with you now is your balanced approach to those things where like i i tend to come at them like a like a very like well you know why would you just do it like this um and and every time i talk to you you're like okay well yes that does make sense however there is a flip side there is a you know there's a reason that it works like that too and it's a matter of you know, how do you how do you find the balance? So that you have to study that? the enemy if you're going to disrupt them. So I spend a lot of time studying the enemy. Um, all right. Well, is there anything else 
uh, you know, that you that you want to touch on specifically on um, zero trust or banyan? Like, is there a question I didn't ask that you hoped we would get to? But, well, the, the one thing I was hoping you would get to is, is, you know, the topic of democratizing security. How does one actually go do it? And and the one thing, you know, we spoke about was consumption-based pricing and all of that. But I think one of the key things is to offer a free product. Uh, I don't think to any security vendor really offers a full-featured free product. I'm not sure why they put their documentation behind paywalls. You know, you have to call them to even get access to a product. All ostensibly in that, oh, our, our sales engineers are very important. They don't have time to deal with you. But what happens is you really isolate and, and more and more businesses are, are recognizing the need for security, but, but they're not sure where to start. Like they can't afford the Microsoft E6 license. So you just kind of like don't target that audience that is that could be very valuable. And I understand you may not make money on them today, but they will grow. And in six months to a year, they will have a budget that they can spend with you. So I think I really feel like uh, I would love to see the security industry have more free product, trial products, sandbox products to, to bring these folks who have typically been disadvantaged from the security perspective in, into the security realm. And, and you know, it's when they get hacked, eventually Target gets hacked. That's, that's how these hacks happen. The small guy gets hacked and then eventually it builds up to the big guy. So we have to protect the small guys and you protect the small guys by giving a product away for free. Well, let me let me play the other yeah. side balanced role there. I agree with you. And on the one hand, I can see like, well, if a company would do that, if a company would say, look, here's the free product, here's the whole product. You can use it for free, I don't know, either for a certain period of time or up to a certain number of users or a certain amount of data, whatever it is, some kind of a cap, you can use this free product, but it is fully functional because it, otherwise it's not a valid test. Right. Um, on the one hand, I would look at that as the vendor and say, well, that, that works great because then instead of us having to like go out and find everyone to do proof of concepts, they can proof of concept themselves and then they'll just come back to us and be like, hey, you know, we'd like to buy that product. Ideally, the flip side to me is. I, I think a lot, you know, a lot of companies are like, well, we need to be able to. Hold their hand, make sure they're configuring it properly, because what if they take the free product? But they don't implement it right. And now they've created this bad image of us. And then they're going out and telling their friends, oh, yeah, I tried that product. It sucked. Um, but it's because you gave them the free reign to try it themselves and they did it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But again, I would just say this is 2022. You, you know, ha does someone use Dropbox wrong? Does someone use AWS wrong? You know, the world has changed. I understand like back in the day I was selling big network appliances. You could mess it all up. But but people people are smart now. They they know how to use infrastructure. They they use uh, Office 365 and Gmail and you know Salesforce and and it, there's no reason why security can't be consumed the same way. There, there is the danger that they will do it wrong. So the 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 requirement on the product goes up. You know, put guardrails, make sure they can't misconfigure it. Give them a lot of warning if they're going to do something wrong. But but I think if you don't do that, then you're just selling security the same way you've been selling it for the last 20 years. And then the 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 folks who don't know they need it, don't use it. Let me ask this. Is there, when, when, when you're giving away the free product, is there any follow-up? In other words, like, do you just give people the, 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 the freedom to use the free product and you're not, you're not hitting them up at all? Or do you follow up after a week or a month and say, hey, how's it going? 
Well, when you give people a free product, they definitely need channels in which to ask support questions. That could be a community, it could be a Slack channel, it could be a Q&A forum, Stack Overflow, and so on. But you you cannot also hit them every week saying, are you ready to buy? Are you ready to buy? No, that, is the, that is the worst way to follow up. There is a follow-up, like, like what we do is we track your consumption. So when we see consumption rising to a certain level, we have a metric that says, okay, if you have published more than these many applications or if you have more than these many users, we'll reach out to you saying, hey, we see you're using the product a lot. Would you like to enable this feature? It's always about enabling a new functionality. Would you like to enable vendor access? And 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 if they say yes, then that gives you the right to follow up. Uh, but if you just hit them every week, I mean, you're not no, going to have. I, I absolutely agree. Like, I mean, and I, I hate I hate the hitting up every week. I uh, what I hate even more than that is when I didn't even ask for anything. Uh, like, I don't even remember giving you my email address, and all of a sudden I'm getting emails every day, you know, pitching me this, that, or the other thing, and I have to unsubscribe. But um, there's a spam button. You hit that, Google will just freaking diss that guy so badly he'll never email you again. Yeah, but I was thinking of it from the standpoint of, you know, yeah, you let someone use it and maybe after a month, you know, you 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 hit you hit them up just to be like, "Hey, just checking, like how's it going for you? Is it good? Is it bad?" I mean, even if they've even if they've used it and it didn't work for them and they, you know, it, that that's a chance to get some feedback and say, "Okay, well, what didn't you like about it?" Exactly. Yep. Yep. So, um, but yeah, no, I agree. I I agree with that. And and it, you know, like you said, it's 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 2022. It would be nice to be able to like try, because a lot of security stuff, a lot of technology stuff, but security in particular is, you know, it's hard to even test it out. You know, and 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 it's like in order to make a good decision, you kind of need to be able to you know see how these things work in the real world in your environment. I mean, exactly. you can read Gartner reports and Forrester reports and and other you know you can read other people's stuff but it's all abstract and it's all generic. And it's like, that doesn't necessarily apply to your specific environment and your specific needs. And, and historically, uh, vendors have said, oh, we are an enterprise product. We are not available for free because we are for the enterprise. Well, it's 2022, Microsoft Office 365 is free. G Suite is free, AWS is free. You know, people are consuming that's how enterprises consume technology now. They just that's just the reality. So we get with the security has to get with the program here. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for uh, for joining me. Uh, it was a good conversation. Uh, you know, like like you said, we 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 managed to get very far from zero trust and and back again. So um, anyway, yeah. Uh, thank you for joining me. Take care. Always a pleasure being here. I appreciate you investing your time to listen to the podcast but I also invite you to engage on social media. Uh, please go like our Facebook page and follow at Techspective on Twitter and Instagram. You can feel free to let me know what you like, let me know what you don't like, let me know if you love it, let me know if it sucks, and uh, let me know what products you'd like to see reviewed or what uh, questions you'd like to see answered in future posts.